This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome. How are y'all doing today? So good. Wow. I hear you slurp. I hear you slurping, Josh. What are you you drinking? Okay. Well, I'm only slurping because it's delicious. It is a Trader Joe's seltzer with a splash. It's a seltzer water with lemon and ginger juice. Ooh. Yes. And I'm super into it. I have to say that as a person who co-hosts three different podcasts, one of my biggest pet peeves is like eating and drinking noises as, <laughs> as, a, as a producer and editor. So thank you for this. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> it was needed. We had to give you something to do, yeah. Stephen. Stephen, what are you right. drinking? I'm drinking a Pure Leaf unsweetened black tea. Delicious. Ice cold, but mm-hmm. not over ice. You know, it's just very cold. Mm. Very good. Very good. I'm consuming a little teeny tiny can of Sprite. It's like one of those little mini cans that just kind of oh. fills you up with joy, you know. Snack pack size. Yeah. Like the airplane size. Yeah, they're just they're just perfect for my little tiny hands, you know. Is that airplane size? I've seen them have like full what, 12 ounce cans? I well, think they some, typically do. Some those. have the smaller ones if they're smaller guess planes. It, guess it depends on the airline, yeah. You're right. Yeah. But you're not drinking Back like a the- tall boy. No. <laughs> have you ever seen those tall boy size of pops? Like who's I have who's drinking those? That's that's it's too ridiculous. Much. Yeah. It's a- I can't even do I like I love LaCroix and I can't do the tall boy versions of sparkling water. I can't do it. Right. It's just too mm. much. Too much. LaCroix. Water left out next to fruit for a day is what it tastes <laughs> like. <laughs> Sorry, Sponsor I'm ragging on LaCroix. LaCroix. LOL. Not a big fan LOL. of LaCroix, but we knew this already. Well, gentlemen, I'm so glad that we could uh, <laughs> gather in this space. Um, so to start off, Stephen, um, a few episodes ago, this is just as a little flashback, um, you were shocked by my uh, beginning of a definition of evangelism. And, oh, you know, yeah. time has now passed and... We are going to be preparing soon for a new season in our life called Advent here before you know it. And me as a pastor was thinking about my personal definition of evangelism. And so my question to you first, you know, point A is what is your definition of evangelism? And point B, Stephen, for you specifically, and then Josh, if you have thoughts, what is it about my definition or what you had heard that sparked this feeling inside of you. And then I will then share mine and we'll just kind of go from there. Does that sound cool to you guys? I think to put the exact words on it, you made the claim that as a pastor, your job is not to save souls. Yes, that is correct. And this is what like a huge question mark just like appeared in a thought bubble over my head. Um, because. I guess in my in my own paradigm, I haven't been presented a way for a pastor to do anything else. 
or at least not include uh evangelism as it uh, as it's typically presented um as like a role of a pastor mm-hmm. uh and this this is certainly due to my own culture based around like offer the sinner's prayer every sunday and allow altar calls and all this like make sure you always leave an opportunity for someone to make the famous decision for Christ. Um, so that's what I'm used to. I guess that's the thing that I was questioning the most. If I was do- going to define evangelism, mm-hmm. I know I personally, I don't even know what it would look like right now. I've, per- I've never been interested in the evangelism project as a thing. You go, you go like meet people on the beach and tell them about Christ and offer to pray with them. You know, basically doing like the verbal version of handing them one of those lame chick tracks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So basically, I've I've always had evangelism framed as you're having an encounter. For some reason, it's in my head. It's always like you're you're talking to a stranger on the street kind of idea. And first, you're going to establish how sinful they are and how they're separated from Christ, and then you're going to offer them salvation through the realization that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, atoning for their wrongdoing, and only if they accept it and pray with you right then will they be allowed into heaven when they die. Wait, Stephen, I'm confused. You said that you haven't done this. I've never done it. So, like, where did you get this idea that that's evangelism? Oh, I mean... Growing up in the churches I did, uh, this this was prized as like the most saintly activity. Oh, okay. It was like, if you're not doing this, then are you really a Christian? Like you need to, like, I remember feeling really inspired my eighth grade year. I was homeschooled my eighth grade year and I knew I was going to be public schooled for high school starting in ninth grade through 12. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. being really inspired in eighth grade to be the, like the lunchtime stand on a bench, wave a Bible and preach the good news kind of kid. And, uh, luckily my self-preservation instincts kept me from ever trying that. (laughs) Um, because as an introvert and as a generally shy person, especially with people I have no relationship Mm with, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not my personality. I could never do that. So I guess evangelism for me nowadays, I might try to define it as a i don't know it's kind of that concept of like preach the gospel every day and uh and use words if necessary kind of idea where it's like i'm going to behave as i believe christ has called me to behave and this is mm-hmm. going to presence itself as love first truth second it's going to presence itself as affirmation of other per- people's experience and you know first and foremost i'm going to craft a relationship um, sure but even then, like people ask, I've, uh, you know how we're typically told, like, act in such a Christ-like way until people around you start asking, you know, what makes you different? I've never had that happen either. I, I can't say that I've ever, like, quote unquote, led someone to Christ. I'm just not interested in that project. So I've been talking too long and now I want to hear from you too. Well, so I have a question though. So what is it then? Is it because I'm a pastor that that just sparked yeah. curiosity for you yeah. like i just think that i just i've, I've always been okay I, I was raised to think that that was 
not only part of a pastor's job description, but that it was like priority one. Mm, okay. So that's where well, I am. I think it okay. is a lot of pastors priority. I think that's why that stereotype is validated for you. Cause I think there's mm-hmm. other pastors mm-hmm. out there who do think it's their job. Do you think that Emily? Oh yeah. I, I went to seminary with um, a gentleman. He's a very sweet man. Um, but he did. That was his sole purpose. He felt <laughs> <Soul> was purpose. To, <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, thank you. I didn't even try. Um, was <laughs> to convert people. Was to spread the good news. Was to bring in as many believers as humanly possible. Yeah. Emily, what was it, the question that you started with? First, oh no, I'm sorry. I was cutting you off there. I'm I'm so sorry. Oh no. To answer your question, what would be your personal definition of evangelism? Because I I. I say personal because for me, evangelism is personal. And so I don't think Mm. we should be going around having this very blanket statement definition. So I was posing the question of what would be your definition of evangelism? Oh, I gotcha. That's a complicated one for me, too, because unlike Stephen, I've been involved in many different forms of evangelism, like what the church would Mm. call evangelism. Like, Do you want to elaborate? And I think I've always been intrigued by it. Sure. Yeah. The earliest memory I have is some guy coming to my dad's church and doing like a mini like seminar conference kind of thing about servant evangelism mm-hmm, and like the mm-hmm. idea of like not just mission work, but even like backyard kind of servant projects. Like we're just going to go around. We have did this one. This is why I remember this example. We're just going to go around and ask people if we can rake their yards. And then they're going to ask us, why are we doing this? And we're going to tell them just because, but also yep. Jesus. Yep. Um, yep. So I remember doing this is that classic one. classic youth group behavior. <laughs> yeah, except this was with adults. So that was... Oh, okay. That was fun. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I also remember this, uh, this, this guy who calls himself an evangelist. His name is Rodney Howard Brown. Uh, you can Google him. He's had some coronavirus controversies lately. Um, but he came to Billings um, when I was in high school. and. He does do the whole like hand out a tract thing. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I remember like going to Walmart with a group of people. Like he would train us and then like send us out into the world. Whoa. And mm. and I didn't realize um until after afterwards when we would like come back to the church to debrief and he was like counting the salvations basically. Gross. That there was no way if you like went through the tract with someone. There was no way to get a no. Gross. If you oh. like verbally read it, oh. it was like, have you accepted Jesus? And whether or not they answered yes or no, you like were supposed to pray the prayer with them. So even if they were like already a Christian, mm-hmm. he was like counting that as a yes. Right. And then when he would list like all of the people he saved, like it was in like the millions. And I was like, wait a minute. Gross. God. Is that counting? Is that like double counting the Christians? I'm confused about the statistics here. And I like I I remember thinking mm-hmm. that that was like breaking down for me. Church sure. stats are pretty famously oh church stats are bad. They're Christians, not statisticians. Um, thank you, oh, thank you. Good point. That is a <laughs> um, great quote, Josh. I only great thought quote. of it because one of my coworkers the other day said, "We're baristas, not mathematicians. We don't know how to add these things up." <laughs> That's um, funny. That's good. Valid. <laughs> um, and then also. Around like high school, post high school, I was also kind of into uh, Bethel's 
concept of treasure hunting, if anyone's familiar with that. You can look that up on your own time. Oh, tell, was, tell us more. I was very into that. The, the concept is basically you pray and you ask God and the Holy Spirit like where God is pointing you to go to just pray for people. Like I think a lot of people approach it as innocently as that, but Bethel definitely uses it as, a, as an evangelism tool. Like we're going to go mm. to find people to pray with that God wants us to encounter for the purpose of leading us to God. Sure. Um, oh, interesting. So that's kind of my summarized, complicated background with evangelism. But I think I've heard people in the church describe it in healthy ways that I would still think are healthy ways. Like sure. the idea of evangelism being like spreading the good news. Like if we believe that Jesus is showing us a new way of being human, then it is good to share that with people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do think that we can still have like a healthy concept for sharing our Christianity and sharing our faith without having like weird conversion tactics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So to answer oh. your question, I, I don't really know like how to frame it personally right now. Mm-hmm. And that's completely valid. And actually I'm, I'm, kind of glad that that's your answer because it's showing i think the complexity of our faith and the complexity of like what our call is not just as church but as individuals and to know that you know as communities of faith or as you know believers together we individually may have some little tiny personal detail when it comes to evangelism that you know, mm. may not entirely fit in with a group of people. And I don't oh, I think to people one. actually take... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. In high school, I was super into wearing those knockoff Christian t-shirts that looked like brands, but were about oh, Christianity. No. Oh, no, Josh. I'm so sorry. <gasps> I, I'm, I did to anyone who went to high school with me, I'm so sorry. I can verify that Emily did that too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Steven is Emily, what was your favorite a witness. One? Oh, what was my favorite one? Oh, that's hard. Oh, okay. Nope, just kidding. I had, I don't know if I have it anymore. I hope I outgrew it and I didn't keep it. <laughs> but I had a football jersey that. Yep. And this then is on the, the one back, I had in mind. <laughs> and then on the back, it said Jesus. <laughs> yeah, love that. And it was number yeah. one, wasn't it? It was. It was number one. <laughs> yeah. Steven knows. Yeah. I think he my favorite probably... one I had was a, a knockoff of Starbucks and it said sacrificed for me and it yeah. like painted Jesus oh. in the middle to look like the mermaid. Yeah. Oh. I, re- I remember seeing those in like the Berean Christian bookstore. Yep. Like Lifeway or whatever. Oh, yes. But oh, the one I got what? the most yes. comments on, which Cringe. I always thought was so clever, was the front of it said, My life was saved by a blood donor. Oh, yeah. Oh and yeah, and it looks like the United, uh, like United, United, United Services Way. logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yep, yep. I got a lot of comments about that, and I'd be like, "Oh yes, actually, his name's Jesus." And oh my god, oh I'm, good I, gravy. My, my worst version of this is uh, freshman year. I think Emily, you could attest to this because we were in band together. Emily, you were like actually my first friend in high school. By the way, when I came from being homeschooled. Are you serious? Um, out, you were the you were my first friend outside of the youth group community I already had. From oh, I'm so mi- honored! School. Wow. And we met oh. in band, but you can we verify did, yes. that I used to wear like a crazy amount of those like rubber bracelets. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> and I had I had one that said uh, he died for me and I live for him. Yep. Except like the word four was replaced with the number four. Number four. For some reason, mm-hmm. like it was extra edgy that way. And uh, I remember I, c- I could not tell you who it was. One of our classmates my freshman year, they were looking at all of them and they were like, what did all these mean? And I was going through them and I, I read them that one. They were like, oh, like your friend died. Like, and I was like, oh, no, it's actually Jesus. And then they were like, oh, and then just yeah. walked away. <laughs> Whoa, that's great. <laughs> Oh. They're like, oh, you're one of those. Oh, <laughs> so Emily, you having been in this like shirt wearing, like, mm, like virtue signaling, I'm a Christian, ask me about it, kind of. That's very oh, much yeah. what it is. Yeah. Thing. Like, oh, how yeah. do you feel like this changed for you? Like, what? Oh. What catalyzed you changing your thinking about this? I think part of it. I'm trying to figure out how the best way to phrase it. Um, I learned that and it comes back to what's life-giving um but i learned pretty early in high school because it actually wasn't like my freshman year was probably the only year that i like really sold that idea um Mm. after that i learned that there are ways to evangelize and then there are ways that you're just toxic to people Mm, and I learned that what I was doing was actually toxic for people because it was continuing the stereotype and the narrative of, oh, Christians only care about bringing in people to the pews. They don't care about me afterwards. Mm. And it made me think about, well, what if I was one of those people walking in through a door of a church needing help? You know, do we then do I seek that help? And then am I going to feel pressured to believe or feel a certain way? And do I have to, you know, join this church? Do I have to then profess Jesus as my Lord and Savior because someone helped me pay my utility bill? And I was just placing myself Mm, in other people's positions. And I realized that that wasn't spreading good news for me. Mm, That mm. what God was calling me to do was something more. And so from then... And even as I was, you know, preparing for college and then going to seminary, I have reminded myself of what it means to evangelize as God is calling me to do. Because I realized that for some people, yeah, it is standing on a corner and having a bullhorn in your hand. If you feel like those are the tools necessary to do God's work, but that's just not for me. And so I had to formulate for myself what evangelism was. And I oh. learned that for me, it was toxic to, to be that person. Wow. You just okay, made so me think of... We... Go ahead, Josh. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, like, how can we, like, put language to things that we kind of feel evangelistic about? Like, for instance, I think that I felt sort of evangelistic about some things that I've done, like, uh, like hosting those beerlosophy discussion nights that I would host in Billings, or, or even this podcast a little bit. Like, there's like a... Mm-hmm. Like, the feeling that I relate to is evangelistic but i know that i'm not framing it in the same way that i used to when i would like wear christian t-shirts and like go try and find people to pray for in walmart yeah it's that but like i don't know what other language to use it's that feeling it's like you you become convinced that you have something worth other people paying attention to yeah Mm, but i also mm -hmm. don't feel convinced to like make people agree with me anymore I would yeah. say that's almost a, 
and I could be completely wrong. This is just how I'm phrasing it. It's almost like a type of altruism. Oh. Like a like a branch also. off of because you're not seeking agree like you're not asking for people to agree with you or you're not asking for people to change their ways or anything like that. You are just presenting yourself in a very authentic manner that has no, you know, no fine print at the bottom of the page. Oh, okay. I actually kind of like that. Plus, the way I've also been thinking about it lately is like, to me, it feels different when I'm inviting someone to be a part of a conversation versus trying to argue with them that I'm right. Right. Oh. Like, I've definitely right. been on the other end before. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Huh. Yeah. Okay, Stephen, you Emily, sounded like you had a thought. Well, so I'm wondering if you can speak to, so for context, you and I did talk about this briefly on your episode mm -hmm. of No Normal People, but- it sounds like the transformation you had between freshman year of high school to probably even today. Could you speak to what, um, what the passing of your friend meant to you during that period? Oh mm -hmm. yeah. And how um, that changed your view of sharing what you call good news. Absolutely. Um, I think to, to set the scene a bit, um, just to kind of share a little bit about my friend, um, so Luke Benton, he was uh, from Bozeman, and we met actually in middle school at Luckick Park Church Camp, just outside of Livingston, Montana. And Luke was just one of those people that he didn't have to try very hard to make people feel welcomed. Um, and he also didn't have to try to, you know, kind of draw in people's attention. Like people would just see him and they were like... There's something about this guy, and you just wanted to be around him. He was also very authentic and genuine in his presence with people. He he wasn't phony. Um, he wasn't two-faced. He wasn't hypocritical, really, in any way. He was just fully and authentically himself. He would be one of the only few people, honestly, that I could think of, other than like my parents or or other people, he was one of the few people that I considered to be like self-actualized. Um, wow. And he was, he was mm. young, you know? Um, so we would continue our conversations even after camp had ended and, um, you know, like through music festivals that we were part of and, and other groups that we were in, we would have chances to get together and to talk. And our friendship just really blossomed from there. Um, so the summer I was going to be a junior in high school, um, our theme for camp that year was Imagine. And so we would play the song, um, you know, Imagine All the People. And it was, you know, it was uh -huh. beautiful. And, yep. You know, we tied in, you know, all sorts of cheesy Christian things at the time. And it was a great week. We all loved it. Um, but then the last day of camp that week, um, he and one of our friends, Cole, they had been gone on a mission trip the weeks leading up to camp. And so they had all their stuff packed and ready to go. And they had said, before we go home, we're going to go do this hike one more time. We always hike up to Pine Creek Falls up out there. And so they had said, OK, we're going to go hike and, you know, then we'll go home. And so we all said our goodbyes. Life was carrying on. Um, and then the next day, we all got a phone call from our dean of the camp. And he had shared that Luke had fallen while he was hiking and he died. And that was really all that we knew. And we were very taken back because that was my first real experience of death. 
I I had pets that died, you know, things like that. And as a child, you don't really grapple with it. But when it's someone your age and someone that you know very well who is just no longer there, you start to doubt a lot. And for me personally, I was doubting God's presence in the world, especially because he had died one in a, I would assume, kind of tragic way. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be, you know, scaling this slippery rock side and then all of a sudden to just fall and, and plummet to your death, you know, and you just wonder, was it quick? Was it painless? That's what you long for, you know. But then I was doubting and I was angry because he had died in a place that for me was sacred where God's presence was the most active for me in my youth. And because of that, I was questioning what good can come from this. Like, what good could truly come from death? Especially death that was not, in my eyes, necessary. Like, he, he had aspirations to go and do the Olympics. He was actually, after high school because he was going to graduate in 2012, he was preparing to go to the trials for the U.S. gymnastics team. And it was so heart-wrenching to say, he's never going to live that dream. Why would God do this? And I was so angry that I didn't think that there could ever be good news to come from moments of pain and suffering. And then as I was wrestling with my faith and with my identity and God's presence in my life, I realized that, no, truly, there can be good news in any situation, and it's because God is present. And it was reassuring for me to know that Luke's legacy could continue because we all had stories and memories to share of Luke. And I could take those elements that he left behind, his generous heart, his altruism, his you know, genuine longing to be present with people, I could take that into my own life for me, for myself and, and show that in a way that was authentic to me while still carrying on the legacy that Luke had left behind. And so because of his death, I actually was able to formulate for myself what evangelism is. And it's to say, this is good news. Like, here's Jesus in a way that's wholesome, that's authentic, that's mm. breathtaking, and to know that it's there always, and it's never going to go away. And that, for me, was a healing moment to say, I can take this and roll with it. I can mm. take this and have it shape me for the rest of my life. And if I can do that, maybe someone else needs to hear it too. And to know that I'm not then going to say, okay, sign your name on this page, you're now a Christian. I wanted mm. that to be important because I didn't want to revert back to my toxic ways of evangelism. And mm. Luke was a reminder of that for me. So wow. does that answer your question? It more than answers my question. Okay. <laughs> my goodness. Uh, if, if you would permit me to say it this way, it sounds like Christ was presencing itself in your life through Luke. I, I oh, don't yeah. want to equate Luke to divinity. Um, I, I think that would be easy for people to take my words out of context and really frame me as a heretic, which I, it's a label I already claim. But 
Um, <laughs> Luke, to you, it sounds like he's almost become the gospel in a way, and not oh yeah, n- not in the way that he has, in a very personal and very real way, through his death and through your inspiration to carry his his mode of being, his dreams, aspirations, uh, the way he inspired others, the way he presenced himself with others, uh, made them feel welcome, make them, make them feel heard and also challenge them. It's like, it's all just revealing to me that the gospel has always been about the birth, death and resurrection cycle Mm -hmm. and how Luke, Luke in his life as one of your friends, like taught you, Cause like you were describing the way, the way your friendship grew and the way he had a way of magnetically drawing people in and Mm -hmm. getting them to share. Uh, And you were describing all this and I was like, Ooh, that sounds like Emily. (laughs) Um, So like he, he taught you, you learned from him in the way he lived his life. And then in his death, what was so poignant to me was when you said like, it was in, what felt like the most sacred space in my life at the time where the most critical death appeared. Mm-hmm. Mm. And man, if that isn't Jesus Christ himself being crucified and like in the most sacred body and the most sacred being given to us sure. through four stories in our Bible through the lens of, of different men experiencing his ministry you know, like the the most sacred things still get kissed by death and yet resurrection reigns right mm-hmm. and and Luke lives on now through you and the way you you carry his legacy forward just in the way you make other people feel known and listened to and you magnetically draw out of other people mm. oh that, that's <sighs> that's so beautiful so that's that's everything you gave me just now Josh what do you oh. think I don't know if I have any more thoughts besides that. I really liked your story, Emily. So oh, thank I think you. it makes a lot of sense. I like this idea, Emily, of evangelism being a personal thing. And yeah. ha- like you get to choose what evangelism is to you sure. in a way. Like you, you the way you evangelize is exactly what you're doing. Uh mm-hmm. you were you were the pastor of a small United Methodist church in Cody, Wyoming. I think the other good angle in the personalization too is that it really gets at, at least in my mind, it gets at like what are the goals of it too. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, oh. I I helped co-direct this uh, kids camp a couple years ago. Actually, no, I take that back. I was only a counselor at this one. I was a counselor at this uh, camp for middle schoolers, and the the two speakers at the end of the week wanted to like. Uh, I don't remember exactly like what they had done before this, if they had done like an altar call night or like something like that, but they wanted the children, these were like middle school children, to document for them on a piece of paper in the back if they had A, become a Christian, B, rededicated their life, or like there was like a couple different options and they were like, it was very clear to me that they were just trying to like document numbers. Mm-hmm. And I felt really mm-hmm. weird about that. I was like, yeah. th- like these kids are going to like leave. These speakers aren't their pastors locally. They're not their youth pastors. They're never going to see these kids again. Right. And they were just like, it felt really icky to me. I think for mm-hmm. for the people who are compelled by those numbers, 
it for me, it seems like well, to me, it said a lot about the goals, right? Like the fact that yes. they wanted those numbers and the incentive structure. That, yeah, and also that like their goal was to like in their mind the the greater purpose behind this was how many people are going to heaven, mm-hmm. right? Because if they have the numbers. And now they're going to try and get hired as guest speakers by other youth groups and other churches. They're going to have. Well, there's also that too. Yeah. Quite literal stats where they can be like, well, at the last camp I went to, I saved 15. Mm -hmm. So like, if you want 15 salvations for your church credited to your heavenly account, you should bring like, it's also, I mean, this is a whole, uh, like international missions kind of idea too. It's like the incentive Mm -hmm. structure is you like what, those of us, quote unquote, at the church back home find compelling are the missionaries give us one good personal story of like a single mother who was saved and now her life is better and her kid's life is better. Oh, totally. And, and then so they mm. give us the compelling story and then they say, oh, and also she is one of 20 people we saved. So if you want this work to keep happening, give us money, please. But also I can kind of appreciate that incentive structure because I think that it is good to like have accountability for, are you actually doing anything? Mm -hmm. Like I think that's good, but I guess what, where I'm delineating is that I think that those people's goals deviate a little bit from uh, Emily's point about, evangelism being like a personal incentive like if you want someone's life to be better right now that's different that's a different goal than Mm -hmm. are they going to heaven or not and am i ensuring that i think there it is part of the reason why i was bringing up this topic and i don't remember exactly which episode or even if we had the conversation but we had talked about um at least in the methodist church how when we have a baptism we ask the congregation to remember their baptism. And when we're asking Uh, someone to remember something, we're asking them to not just recall, but to actively engage. uh So it's not enough just to be like, oh yeah, I remember I was baptized as a baby. You're asking them to actively say what it is that they are holding onto in their identity as a Christian. And Mm. if that's something that you are actively doing all the time, I don't, me personally, I don't see how an evangelistic moment can be a one, like, you save a life, you're done. That's, oh, that's why so I, true. that's why I disagree with my job as a pastor is, you know, I, my job is not to save souls because well, God's the one saving people. So, not, I'm not, I'm not oh. Wonder Woman. So you're describing the difference between what I think is probably fairly called American evangelism versus discipleship Mm -hmm. yeah because a discipleship is a lifelong engagement and a lifelong deep friendship where secrets are shared and vulnerabilities are shared i just heard recently that the greatest definition of love is giving someone else the power to kill you and yet they don't Mm. And that's what discipleship feels like, right? Like if you're going to let people yes. know like the deepest, darkest corners of your psyche, mm. you best hope that they don't use that power against you. But the fact that you're voluntarily giving you that or the fact that you are voluntarily giving them that power over you is that signal of trust and quite literally discipleship, right? Like that's that's why the 12 disciples are compelling to us and why we can still name mm-hmm. them 2000 years later is because they entered in 
that sacred bond with Jesus. I also think about how, for me, when I when I'm at the pulpit and I'm giving a sermon, or if I'm in a Bible study, or even just doing a visitation with someone in my church, I want to always talk about the resurrection, or I always want to talk about the crucifixion, and I always have to remember that. There's always the stuff beforehand, like the fact that Jesus was born and then lived a life. And that's the only reason that we can get to a resurrection and a crucifixion was because he had to live in order to die. Mm. Mm. And I remember when I was in the Holy Land, another drop. There it is. Uh, my, pro- my professor, Dr. Yo, <laughs> he took us to the what scholars and historians believe to be the site where Jesus um, was crucified. And then oh, wow. the the place where people believe that was the grave was the tomb. Wow. Um, and so we saw both places, quote unquote. And then our professor took us to this just empty spot in this giant chapel. And he said, do you know where we're standing in? And we all looked around and we said, no. And he just got this big smile on his face. And he said, you're standing in the center of the universe. And we all kind of like looked at him like he was a little crazy Hmm. but then he elaborated and said this is the place between life and death where in order to know resurrection he had to die but in order to in order to even understand death in itself resurrection took place and this this weird thing in between was the center of the universe and i think about what is the center of our universe in the sense of, are we caring about the space in between where someone's faith journey begins and the possibility of someone's faith journey pausing or starting up again? Where are we in those moments where people are questioning? Because if our only task is to save souls, then no one has succeeded. Mm. Man, my mind is going so many places right now, Emily. I'm sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Um, wow, where do I want to start? How then do, how do you approach evangelism then? Like if you believe that Jesus is just valuable, like even, even like not even talking about theology, but even if you think that like what Jesus has to say is valuable, mm-hmm. how, how do you go about that? Like if I've heard the analogy described that like, if you're on a plane that's about to crash and you have the life jackets. Mm. Or no, if you have the parachutes, not life jackets. If you have yeah. the parachutes yep. and you're trying to convince someone to wear the parachute so they survive and they don't want to, like, isn't it a moral prerogative for you to give someone the parachute or tell them why they need the parachute? Like, if you really believe it's real. Like, to me, that's what's so compelling mm-hmm. to me about those people who have bought into American evangelicalism so much that they are the ones on the corner with the bullhorn or they are the ones still going out to Walmart. Like to me, that seems like they wholeheartedly wholeheartedly believe it's important and life giving. Like they, they they still see it as life giving. They don't see it as. I potentially damaging. It's, I think for me, it's, mm, Oh, go ahead, Steven. It's life gives it's life giving in the way that it's also escapism. I think it's all centered on a theology that, this world is going to hell in a handbasket and you know, true, that, true. that's why the yeah, analogy, the plane. That, yeah, that's why it's a plane yeah. where the engines has failed and we're three thirty thousand 30,000 feet up, you know, like, and uh-huh. it's like, 
quick give give everyone the parachute. And yet there are so many uh, ancient Jewish allegories that you could probably apply to that. Um, Mm. For instance, Job, like his world crumbled Mm. around him and he survived and Mm. God showed up at the end. I think the fact that we're not given that as a presentation of what the mm. the gospel means to the disciples, mm-hmm. the fact that well, Jesus could have pivotal, used that as an example. He could he, have said the kingdom of God is like a ship that's going down. Absolutely, right. and even and Paul you have to tell people how to <laughs> yeah. get out. And then Paul, who experiences shipwrecks, never once in one of his letters describes the world like the ship that's about to be dashed against the rocks. Right? Sure. So, yeah. True. That's a good point. It's it's absolutely pivotal that the analogy that draws us from Genesis one to revelation final chapter. I forget how many chapters there are. Um, 21. I think 21, 21. We see gardens and cities. Thank you for this gift. The divine writers, (laughs) however you frame the Bible, Mm. but the fact that the garden in Genesis one, two and three is, is a place where human beings get to collaborate with God. They are not causing. So Emily, what I'm mapping this onto is you, you're not there to save souls because it's God who saves souls, right? In the same way that Adam and Eve's job wasn't to create tomatoes. It was simply to plant tomatoes and help them and collaborate with the earth to grow the tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm. then when Jesus is literally sweating blood, because he's freaking out about the crucifixion in the, in the garden, of Gethsemane. This is another place. Which I've been there. <sighs> name drop. <laughs> I say name drop. Place drop? Noun drop? <laughs> but uh, Location drop? It's, Humble yeah, brag. Garden of Gethsemane is where the worst anxiety inflicted upon a person knowing his death is coming mm. because, because what he's been saying for the last three or four or 33 years is something so countercultural that it's threatening power structures, right? So he's freaking out because he knows he's about to die by the most painful way for a human being to die, as it's commonly billed. And then the fact that flipping the ver- the first apostle in the Bible is Mary showing up at the tomb and then mistaking mm. the resurrected Jesus for the gardener. Mm. It's like I, mm-hmm. Jesus this whole time, God this whole time, is inviting us to collaborate and not just be like uh, mm-hmm. the lifeguard pulling away people from the jaws of the great white on the beach, you know? Well, and so I think to answer your question then, Josh, Stephen, you are tying in my answer very nicely. In shorthand, I would say, instead of telling the person why they should take it, I would say, I'm on this journey with you. Why don't we share this parachute together? We can find mm. a way we can find a way to to go through this part of our journey together. And that's mm. where, for me, I had said, you know, yeah, my job is not to save souls. My job is to sit and be present. It's a journey. Mm. It's, you know, I think mm-hmm. of I think of the two men on the road to Emmaus and, you know, how different the story would be if it was just one person rattling on about how crazy this moment was where the supposed Messiah had died on a cross and, you know, wrestling with that, I think would be so difficult. But when we do it together, when we do it one one other person, five other people, a hundred people, you know, we're we're embarking, we're collaborating in a way that is giving a, a bigger picture to what God is or who God is for us. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what I've loved so far in the, you know, the short few months I've been serving officially as a pastor at this church is so many people have said, you just bring something new and fresh. And I, I say, mm-hmm. thank you. But then I remind myself, oh, I'm not, I'm not the one doing it. It's, it's all of us together mm. doing it. I'm just putting words into the air to to vocalize it. But really, it's us in communion with one another mm-hmm. that is embarking on this journey on our road to Emmaus. Right. And mm. yeah, we we are just being present with one another. And that's why I hate the idea of saving souls is because then you are so detached from that person. Because they become this possession of something that you have to achieve rather mm. than actually seeing them for the worth and the value that they bring yeah. to God's creation. Right. And if I'm going to worry about the quantity of people, the quality is going to go down the toilet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I really like that you brought up the road to Emmaus because like, you made me think of the literal depiction of Jesus meeting the like two of his followers on the road to Emmaus and he doesn't reveal himself and they just like talk. They like talk about probably theology and life and it doesn't say Mm -hmm. exactly what they talked about. Yeah. And then later their eyes are opened. Only after he breaks bread as he did in the upper room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do they finally figure out like, and that's, and that's what he does in the resurrection accounts is that he does something that, is familiar to the person he's revealing himself to like mm-hmm. the breaking of bread their their eyes are only opened after he breaks the bread and they their brains finally put the pattern together like oh wait what and then he disappears right but even with mm-hmm. mary at the tomb mistaking mistaking him for the gardener it takes him saying her name with his tongue and his lips to say mm-hmm. mary and then mm-hmm. she's like oh, mm-hmm. raboni you're here like Hmm. There's there, there's a thing he does it seems in his resurrected state where he it's just familiar enough but it's also like it's it's brand new for the same mm. when he when he appears to Peter and John on the shores like they go fishing they're dejected they're depressed because their messiah their their teacher for the last 3 years was murdered was crucified and it takes him showing up on the beach and telling him hey cast Cast the net on the other side. Remember that thing I did when I originally called you as disciple? Do that again. Mm. And then as soon as they catch the fish, Peter is like, it's him. And he just like jumps the boat and starts swimming toward the shore. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that, and I don't know how much this actually plays into it, but the disciples were quite a bit younger than Jesus. I love and- this. I love this idea. And so I think about how when you hear your teacher is gone, you know, to be the age that they were, how do you, well, Peter probably was actually closer to Jesus' age um, because he had a house and everything. But I think about young people today and the message of evangelism that is being shared as American evangelism. What do you think? They would say if they were listening to this podcast and how we were talking about evangelism. What the disciples would think? Yeah. Oh, my God. I think if, if they're listening to this podcast, well, 
Hi, John. Um, super huge fan. Um, thanks for tuning in. Um, love your work. Shout out. Please leave us a rating and a review to let other people know. About Follow show. us on Instagram. Well, okay. The, the the first thing you made me think of, Emily, was that I love that the Bible gives us a depiction of the first people to go through faith crisis about Jesus. Mm, like the disciples yes. lost Jesus before anyone else did. Yeah. It, it straight up sent Peter into a spiral. And when people asked him, he was like, oh, no, I've never been. I've, mm-hmm. I've never been a follower wow. of Jesus ever. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. The famous I'm denial. I'm completely going to dissociate myself. This guy must have been a fraud. This guy didn't know what he was talking about. Um, I'm not going to, I'm leaving that completely behind. I, I never knew him. Wow. To me, that's so comforting in a lot of ways. Because I think that a lot of people have gone through that. And I think it's really easy to forget that um, whether you're leaving behind a past view of evangelism or a specific leader, um, a specific teacher, um, that for some reason or another, there was like a falling out between you following them and what they had to say, um, or whether it was just Jesus and the church. Like, I think that we forget that even the Jesus story gives us a picture of the first people to go through that in terms of following wow. Jesus. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And you also made me think of, um, I really, I think we mentioned this in an earlier episode, but I really love this quote from Rachel Held Evans, she says something along Ugh. the lines of, like, we can't forget the tradition that gave us Christ. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, whichever one we came from, whether uh. we have switched faiths or um, left it all together, we can't forget the one that introduced us to Jesus in the first place, even if the system that introduced us to Jesus was completely flawed and anti-Jesus. Mm. Wow. Like, even if we were gifted it, even if we were gifted Jesus by... Uh, like a really toxic view of evangelism that was just like street preaching or um, a stranger coming up to you at Walmart and trying to like win your soul. Even if that's what introduced us to Jesus, it doesn't invalidate the faith you have today. Right. Because Jesus so successfully cannot belong to any one group or any one party or anyone. Mm -hmm. Oh man. I, one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus from Richard Rohr on one of his uh, daily meditations was, Christ presenced himself in the world as a female soul in a male body. Mm. Oh, what a gift that mm-hmm. language is, right? Like he can't, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't belong to anything. So whatever, whatever toxic mess tried to give you their version of it. It's like, it's like one of those things where you finally get it in your hand and you start turning it and getting new angles on it. And you're like, there's so much here. There's sure. so many angles of reflection and depth and beauty even if i was told that like the one face of the cube was the whole cube um mm-hmm. as, as soon as i finally get to turn the the thing i realize there's more color and there's more there's depth to it bam josh that's good thank you for giving me have that. ever told you my coffee analogy for this please do <gasps> now no. please do it now like, barista oh, okay josh well, if you insist um <laughs> Like the fact that I love coffee today and really good coffee yeah. would not have been possible without being introduced to Starbucks at first. Oh. And like it would oh. be like even though I now see that as like way too sugary, way too burnt tasting, not great coffee, really commercialized, mm-hmm. mm, not great in some other ways. Uh that like those beginnings Mm. don't take away from the fact that that's what introduced me to coffee and like put me on the path towards like appreciating the greater quality and the greater nuance 
And oh, like if it hadn't okay. been for that, I, I was wouldn't very be good. where I am today. And I like to think of faith the same way. Here's a question then. What was it then? And this is, I guess, me assuming that you had a choice in the matter. And if you didn't, um, you know, you can clarify that or speak more to it. But if you had a choice in it, the definition or the understanding of evangelism that you were given or what was shared with you, what was it then that drew you in and and believe that for as long as you did? And what was it then for you guys that showed you, you know, what was it? What was the moment that you stopped wearing those ridiculous bracelets, Stephen? Oh, when wow. was the moment where you stopped wearing those shirts? And was it meaningful? Did it hurt you? What were the things that you were experiencing when you stopped that? What a potent question i Emily. can't think of like a specific moment i can like what started and it, doesn't it have off. to be i can it could be even like a, it okay. could be a string of you know things leading oh. up to it, realizations or something you know wow so there's there's been quite a trajectory in my life with re- with the relationship to church community and my skepticism around uh denominational movements all that but it all started and it unlocked something in me it was uh it was my sophomore year of high school um i was dealing with a lot of body shame i was also dealing with a lot of i guess externalized shame basically like my wife and i dixie and i started dating my freshman year of high school and cutest uh, couple ever she well it was cute until we really started discovering how much fun it was to make out. And then we did it all over the place. <laughs> I can attest to that. Thank you, Emily. Yep, it's true. So that's when it stopped being cute. And uh, so I was dealing, especially sophomore year, was when she and I started like fooling around. And she wouldn't she wouldn't have a problem with me saying this. Like, we're so upfront with the fact that we started having sex when I was a sophomore. Um, mm. Again, uh, it's one of those things where... I, I'm not proud of it, but at the same time, I've, I've so, I've come to a place where I can just release all that shame and be very okay with the way Mm. my, my sexual life has evolved and started when it did, but I was dealing with a lot of shame like that. And a lot of that, um, of course was coming from ideas of like sexual immorality, a lot of language in the Bible, also trying to deal with it and avoid like a lot of temptation talks in youth group. So the youth group was the community where I would bring that, especially small group. And it was like, you know, confession time. Oh, look at that. Steven messed up again with his girlfriend. And then like every week I would just (laughs) bring more because you can say you don't want to have sex when you're a 16 year old, but then your body tells you something else. But so what happened for me was that community where I was trusting them with that kind of information and that kind of vulnerability I felt like that community shattered and I felt like I grew up very quickly after that youth pastor decided to move. Uh, and all of a sudden the wow. community mm. the community needed to be a lot less person centric. Sure. Mm. Because, you know, Sean decides to go move to North Dakota and my whole world just collapsed. Like I felt like I grew up really fast and that's wow. when I lost the bracelets and the t-shirts and all that because I was like, wow. "Oh man, I need to I can't just rely on this guy being my teacher. I need to figure some stuff out. And then had a really painful junior year because Dixie and I actually did break up and take a year of being like, wow, if we need to be, if we want to be serious about getting married in the future, then we need to make sure our relationship can stand the test of 
um, really dealing with what what this uh, sin is in our life. Yeah, no, yeah. So that was the moment where I was like, I need to, I need to grow up, and it was it was finally one of those things where the the radical definition of grace and unmerited favor and just an outpouring of love. That was it, man. Mm. That was it. So like it was, it felt surfacey. It felt, yeah. You know, like the rubber bracelets and, and fun rings and, uh, saying all the right things. But that's, that's when really I learned that I, uh, it was time to grow up. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. That was, that was really, really vulnerable to hear about. I think what changed for me, I don't remember like what started me wanting to be or like being intrigued by evangelism, but I think what kind of made me teeter off was me realizing that like what I was doing wasn't working, whether it was the shirts or Mm. me like delving into learning more about apologetics and reading up more so that I could argue better on Facebook, you know, have a defense for everything you believe. First Peter 317. Like oh, there's a quote. There like, is yeah. scripture. Yes. <laughs> um, but like I think that like everything just eventually broke down for me, and I realized that all the methods I was trying, and as creative as I was trying to be, and as smart as I was trying to be, like I was not convincing anybody. I wasn't yeah. winning anyone. Yeah, it's like you were. You thought you were baiting the hook so well, and then you're like, why am I not getting any bites? Yeah. 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 Oh. Mm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I still like feel that tinge of, no, I feel like I've discovered something that matters. Like this thing is sticking with me, no matter how much I wrestle with it, no matter how much my beliefs change, there's like something worthwhile that I've discovered. And I know that there's other people who don't have that. Mm -hmm. And so I like, I still kind of feel that drive and I still can't quite like wrap my brain around how to do it healthily. So what it seems like is like we can have our personal definitions of what evangelism means, but beyond that, I think it's important to describe what it means to share good news or share the gospel. I remember mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. one of my dear friends went on a year-long mission sh- trip through uh crew, like mm-hmm. the college ministry. And I remember when she was doing the fundraising, like we went out for a beer, we started talking, and I was like, "So what does it mean to you?" to be sharing the gospel in the upcoming year. Um, now I, I did make it absolutely clear that her answer was not contingent on if I would give her money on a monthly basis. Like I was, I was already bought in just because I want to support my friend do mm-hmm. what she believes is meaningful for the world. Right. So mm-hmm. the money wasn't on the line. I was ready to support because I believe in her. Um, but her, her definition of gospel came across like very much what I was handed in in youth group and kind of what I laid out at the beginning here. Like you're sinful, you need God and Christ died here. Let me show you how that like atones for your sins or like balances the ledger. And now you get to live in a new way, like put on Christ, put your old self down and live in this new way. So I'm going to turn the question to you guys (laughs) and I'm ready to hear what is your definition of gospel? Because I think if we pin down a definition of gospel, it helps us know what we're evangelizing. Mm. How do you think you would frame the gospel if somebody asked you what it was? I heard someone describe uh, what they called a four-part gospel a couple years ago that I think could potentially work for 
the majority, if not all Christians, and also not dependent on your view of salvation and how it works. And is this what Josh believes is gospel? I think so. I think so. Okay. If I can articulate it well enough, it was along the lines of number one, God created the world. And like, there is also, man, I'm trying to remember exactly how it wasn't quite as simple as like creation, fall, resurrection, redemption, but it was basically that like there was creation, there was destruction in the world and in us. Mm. Christ is the saving power and Christ will redeem. Are you? It was it was pretty simplified, you, but I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly how they put it. But I remember thinking at the time. Are you describing the the work of Alexander Shia? Oh, I might be. It might have been Alexander Shia actually, because I have heard a couple interviews from him. Yeah, it's what he calls the quadratos, like the oh, the, the four mm, movements, familiar. the four mm-hmm. movements of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Yeah, yeah. And it you being like, it? I don't remember it, but it's like it, the four gospels and the order they're presented like presents us like on a cosmic scale. Yeah. In some way it, on a cosmic scale, it represents what gospel is. If anybody is curious, the place to go would be the deconstructionist podcast. And they interviewed him like two or three times. If I remember, just start, yeah, just search it. Alexander Shia. I think his last name is S H A I A. Um, he's a rabbi, which was another one of those, those fun nuggets. He's like, he's presenting this as a Jewish person. Oh yeah. That's good. Emily, what would you what would you call the gospel if somebody just asked you? God, past, present, and future. Oh, I like that. That's it. That's it. God, God, past in the sense of the stories that are shared or not even shared for that matter, um, but for the ones that are shared, present in the sense of how we are reading or unveiling those stories today and living our lives, reflecting on those stories, and then future the unknown things yet to come things that we don't have a hand on yet but we can still imagine and be a part of wow because god is hands-on for me gospel has to be hands-on for me it can't just stay in my brain it has to be yeah it has to be physical i think about how in world war ii and i don't remember it might have been in berlin i might be wrong but there was a church that was actually bombed and ironically one of the only few things that survived were the hands and the feet of the statue they weren't perfect okay i'm not like saying like it was like a but it was a little (laughs) ironic to be to see that oh the hands and the feet were the things that were still in a form that could be recognized from the rest of the statue that had crumbled and that for me is gospel is knowing yeah it is using my hands it is walking with people it is holding hands of those dying it is sitting next to someone who is struggling financially and asking for guidance it is Mm. sitting Mm -hmm. in the pew by myself and crying and saying god what is in store for me and to say there's things yet to be unveiled and i can look to the past and see what has been done before reflect on that now and hope for the future wow it, to me, this idea goes back to the idea of Christianity being a heuristic or a rule of thumb that is then overlaid and applied to different situations. Mm. Like to me, yes. that's what you're getting at, Emily. With yeah. theology needs to be practical and embodied, not just oh. heady and intellectual. There's the embodied right. me, word again. 
Yeah, it's, it has to be acted. Yeah. Yes. If, well, and faith without works is not dead. Like, I really think that that's what that verse is getting at. Yeah. That, like, if you're just talking about it, it's not it's not really real. Right. And yeah, because if you're just the, talking about it and you're not doing it, then Christ isn't actually being, <gasps> Christ isn't showing up. I have a scripture. I have a scripture. And it was Give from it. my sermon Give for it. All Saints Day. Yes. So I talked about Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and it's, not everyone who professes Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is those who act on the will of our Father. And so for me, it's knowing there it is. it's not just, you know, flapping your lips. It's doing the grunt work and actually putting your nose to the grindstone and actually speaking through your actions what you are saying verbally. Wow. Which mm-hmm. brings me back to... If you if you'd permit me to touch touch on this for a moment, that brings me back to our elephant in the room episode. And I think there's a great potential that many, many people can act according to the will of our father and never call the inspiring. They they can they don't have to call the motivation the Bible or Jesus Christ, but they are acting in Christ or like in Latin in Cristo. They're entering that flow and acting according to the will of the Father, even if the Father has a different name. So, Well, and there's the verse in James mm-hmm. that says, uh, true religion is the care of the orphan and the saint, or there the orphan is. and the widow. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, and see, that's what, but that's what's so difficult for me in like trying to put a narrative to the gospel. Like, a, like I think a lot of people grew up on the like Romans road kind of thing, or like, oh, yeah. yeah, try to oh. tell the story of creation and the fall and... Yeah. Like what got us to the Messiah. And and while I think all, all of that narrative of the Bible is important, obviously, I, I think that that's really easy to get lost in. And it really gets away from the practicality of sure. God loves you, who wow. you are. Like you wow. don't have to do anything to, to, to deserve God's love. Wow. Like it, it reminds me of what Greg Boyd says about um, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, the cross and the crucifixion is the center point of the whole gospel yeah, narrative. That's the heuristic. And if you and that's the heuristic. And if so therefore if you look at everything else through a cruciform or a cross centric lens, mm, mm-hmm. then you have to conclude that people are in like God sees you as having invaluable worth. Right. Right. Wow. And that's why he died for you. Which is something also that Emily gave us in the story of her friend Luke. Like that was the he right. was born he lived a life that made an impact on the people mm. he met at camp and the people he knew in Bozeman. Death in the most sacred of spaces and resurrection through the spiritual ongoing of his of his impact through people like Emily doing the work she does now. Like it very much feels like after hearing that story, Emily, like you were inspired to become a much more embodied and open peacemaking person. After that, like that was your moment mm-hmm. where you, you know, it was, it was like my moment where my, my youth pastor left. It was like, that was the moment where you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this means yeah, something. Truly. Um, okay. Emily, though, I have a question that I was going to bring up earlier. And now I feel yeah. like this is a good time to ask it. If you don't feel like you save people and God is the one who saves people. And I think I know what you're saying by that. But if you truly believe that, like, you have no effect and God is the only one who can save people. I see then, what you're saying. Is there no, thank you, is there no moral obligation then? Does that take out any obligation to tell people about Jesus? Mm. Sure. 
So like if we truly have no effect on anything. And I would say so well no we 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 truly have an effect. So maybe this will be a good note to kind of wrap up, wrap up on is my job as a pastor is not to save souls in the sense of God is the one who is actively doing the saving and it is through our stories it is through our connections with people it's how we form relationships that allows God to work. And I'm not saying that mm. God can't work if I'm not doing it. God can work with or without me. But I'm yet another avenue in which God's glory can be seen, but it's not at my own beck and call. I'm not saying, okay, mm. God, I'm ready. Let's save this person. Let's make sure they get to heaven. It's, wow. okay, God, how mm. are you? How are you going to use me today to show your goodness in the world? And let's just see where it goes from there. Because Hmm. I know I have an effect on people. I, you know, this isn't to toot my horn, but I've seen a lot of people change in the few months that I've been serving in this church. Mm -hmm. I've had people come up and ask Mm. me such hard questions that they've never wrestled with before. That's Mm. God at work, Mm, you know, and Mm. someone else could have been doing the same thing and they would maybe come to the same conclusion. but. I just happened to be the person who was at the pulpit at that time who wow. was inspired through God to share this particular message with no agenda attached. I have no, you know, mm. I, I don't have a set goal in mind because that's not the task that I was given. I was given the beauty and the choice to say, I just want to be present with you as your pastor. Like, I want to be mm. the sheep dog in this flock listening mm. to the shepherd guide me to help guide the flock. Mm. Mm. That is truly pastoral, I think. I think my definition of pastor has changed. Yeah, because it's mm. that shepherd idea. Or back to the garden, right? It's cultivating. Right. It's collaborating. You're not there to create the seed. You just you just plant it, water it, right. tend it, weed it. You know, I, I think of, I just think of, you know, and maybe this will be the question I'll kind of, end on uh sort of speak what is something that you can take from your old understanding of evangelism and say is life-giving for you today because i don't want to just leave it on the note of oh it was toxic through and through don't look back because i do think we need to acknowledge that like you said we have to we have to acknowledge where we come from and yeah even if we have moved on from that, there's still something good that we can bring with us. So what was something for you, maybe, that you have been able to bring out of your previous experiences with or of evangelism? Ooh, ooh, ooh me, 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 go, me, me, Josh, me, go, me, Josh, me. I see your hand raised. I think, thank you, thank you. Uh, I think it's absolutely for me seeking out to care for the other. Mm. Like, I think that people who snap, are snap, snap. really... Into, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think the people who are really into seeking out people to evangelize in their hearts really care for other people. And I think that's what we have to remember is that like, even if we leave behind or like our, our ideas about evangelism or conversion or faith change, that we can't forget about the care for the other person and mm. the seeking out of the other. Yeah. And I think that's what's so beautiful to me about people who are really passionate about that Yeah, is that People will go at like crazy lengths sometimes to literally reach one person 
But I think you did bring up a good point, Emily, about mm-hmm. like we can still do that while remembering that we are we ourselves are not responsible for someone else's wow salvation or anything else. That's good. Mm-hmm. I I guess yeah. My concept is I like the seeking word, Josh, that you're using. I think the thing that I'm carrying forward from the past enthusiasm and energy I felt around evangelism, even though I never acted on it. I think that that sense of always being mindful of opportunity to share what mm. you think is most valuable in your life. And now, the, like, mm. like we just established, the definition of what that good news and what that gospel is can change. But I, I think the action of being mindful of looking for those kind of opportunities to say, hey, I've experienced that kind of anxiety and this is how... Christ has taught me a new way to accept that anxiety and let it go. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, yeah. I guess my, like very briefly, my, my definition of gospel nowadays is something I got from Richard Rohr. And it's essentially the pattern of order, disorder, reorder as presented to us in birth, crucifixion, resurrection. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we're constantly in that cycle. And this, this is what faith crisis feels like. And this, this is what it feels like to ravel something out that you thought was foundational at the beginning of things. And now you're in a disorder phase, Mm -hmm. Um, but we still get to enter reorder eventually. We can always look forward to that, but we can't rush it. We have to be mindful and just like sitting in this potential of opportunity to say like, okay, here we are. I think the other thing that I'm feeling challenged by is uh, this kind of goes back to uh, a couple episodes ago um, where I brought up that sometimes it's hard for me to bring up a personal opinion. Wow. And I think that that's I'm, I, like I'm feeling challenged by this conversation, too, that like I felt it more lately during these pandemic times, um, mm-hmm. especially when a lot of uh, more prominent, well-known Christians are getting articles written about them, I'm feeling much more likely myself to say, actually, I'm a Christian too, and I'm okay accepting that label, mm, that's and good. I don't completely think that way. I that's think sure. this way. I like that. Wow. Yeah. And that's very I, good. To me, I think that that's important work to do too, no matter like what side of the political aisle you're on yeah. or what you're disagreeing about theologically. I think that kind of voicing is also wow. really key. Mm-hmm. What a gift. What a gift. What about you, Emily? What are you, what are you oh. bringing out of thinking about evangelism. Good news can come in any form. It doesn't have to Mm. be through just your words. It can be through the death of a loved one and, you know, a realization. Mm. It can be through your presence with someone else. Um, It's the thought of actions truly speak louder than words. And how can I talk about good news if I'm not living and reflecting that in my own life? Mm. So that's a challenge yeah. for me is to do that. This wow. is great. This was a fun one. Uh, to wrap up here, thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song In Full Color off his album here that we get to use as our theme song. Also, if you're listening and you like what you're hearing or maybe don't like it, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps us know what people are thinking about us. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to be involved in some of the discussions we're having on social media, uh, we are at RavelPod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also follow us personally. We have, we're going to link to things in the show notes, like things we mentioned, and also our social medias, if you'd like to be connected with us there. Emily, would you lead us out of this 
fantastic conversation. Sure. Whatever good news is to you, however you want to share that good news, know that we are all present in this together, discovering for ourselves what it means to evangelize and to be evangelists in God's beautiful world. Amen. Mic drop, boom. classic concept try the whiskey bench podcast start with a free pour of our complicated and fascinating world followed by an ounce or two of intellectual humility add a dash of philosophy politics or current events zest with fresh spicy opinions garnish with shenanigans best served neat i'm steven torna i'm kat dwyer and i'm steven henning this is a podcast where we seek to graduate the understanding of our world beyond meme culture we find that a well-rounded cocktail has a lot in common with good conversation. It's all about balance and complimentary flavors. So join us every week as I present you with a new cocktail recipe paired with wide-ranging conversation. Follow us on social media at Whiskey Bench Pod and subscribe to the Whiskey Bench wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, always drink responsibly and cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Mm-hmm.